Years ago, when I was a seminary student, brand new seminary student in Vancouver, British Columbia, I observed an interaction between a professor and a child that has stuck with me. The professor was Gordon Fee, whom I would come to regard very highly for his influence in my life. Gordon was a New Testament professor who was at the top of his field. His publishing record was impressive. He was a sought-after speaker, and he was serving at the time as the general editor of the revision of the new international version, the NIV, the Bible in our pews. To put it plainly, he was highly regarded. Within the first few weeks of arriving in Vancouver, there was a faculty student retreat. I was not sure what this was going to be like. Was it going to be a room full of people geeking out over intense theological debates? And I remember setting my bags down in one of the rooms and seeing little two-year-old Elia, an adorable Aussie girl whose mother I had just met a week before, waddling across the room. She was on a mission. Following her path, I turned my gaze and saw Gordon Fee, who was just turning around himself, and saw Elia making his, her way towards him. Elia, he cried with arms outstretched, and the girl broke into a run. As she ran into his arms, he lifted her up, and the two proceeded to have this nonverbal, mostly, conversation, faces beaming at each other. Now, this went on for several minutes, not seconds. I kept marveling at how elaborate this was. Later, I would discover Elia and he attended the same church, and of course, Gordon had several grandchildren of his own. But in that moment, all I could think of was, I'm going to like it here. You may not recall a story like this yourself, but you may be drawn to images like this, of Pope Francis enjoying and blessing little children. What is it about moments like these that make an impact on us? I think these moments touch our hearts because they violate the unspoken social norms of our culture. See, even in democracies where we're supposed to be equal, there are implicit hierarchies that provide status, access, and honor to some and ignore others we deem less important. There are important people either because of their achievement or wealth or fame, and there are unimportant people. There are people with status and position, and there are no names. There are people with power, and if you can convince them to use their power on your behalf, that's great. And there's people without power, and they're simply not worth your time. When we catch glimpses of people living according to a different social norm, it catches our eye. Our story this morning is one such moment, and even though it's very brief, only four verses, its impact has been lasting. For centuries, this has been one of the most beloved vignettes about Jesus. So, of course, it makes our list of famous sayings of Jesus we're looking at in our current series, Quotable Jesus. The phrase begins, let the little children come to me, and we'll look at the full context in a moment. But what I want us to see this morning is that through his words as well as his actions, Jesus is teaching us not only about the worth of children, but also about the nature of this kingdom that he is establishing. Who exactly gets an admission ticket? 
And what he says is as surprising to us today as it was to those disciples who first heard it 2,000 years ago. Our story is found in Mark 10, 13 to 16. You can follow along with me on the screen or turn to page 1540 in that pew Bible. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. The story starts with people bringing their children to Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly who these people are, whether they are parents, grandparents, aunts or uncles, or older siblings. Perhaps it's a mix. But we do know they're looking for Jesus to put his hands on the children. The Jewish people had a beautiful tradition stemming all the way back to Genesis 48, when Jacob does this with his grandsons, of placing hands on a child's head praying for them and blessing them. This is probably what the people are seeking. Now, what about the kids? How old are they? The word for little children here appears frequently in the Bible, and it refers to children any age between birth through 12 years old, a prepubescent child. But what's most telling is that these kids are being brought to Jesus by concerned adults. The passive voice is used here. So they're not old enough to come themselves. Likely, varying ages are represented here, from babies to grade school. And as they make their way to the famous teacher, healer, God-man, they're stopped. Verse 13 continues, the disciples rebuked them. I mean, who do these kids think they are? Don't they know Jesus doesn't have time in his schedule today for kids? He's busy. He's got important matters to attend to. If you've ever tried to get into an appointment with a top-notch medical professional, you know what I mean. It can take weeks, even months, for a spot to open up since they're in such high demand. The disciples' behavior will make a lot more sense to us if we understand how children were viewed in the first century. Essentially, children were socially powerless. Infant mortality rates were very high. In the Greco-Roman world, babies could be discarded and left on trash heaps if they weren't wanted or if the family didn't feel like they could support them. One famous papyrus dated June 14, 1 BC in Alexandria from a poor man to his expectant wife gives instructions to keep the baby if it is a boy and discard it if it's a girl. This, in fact, became one of the boasts of the early church that they did not participate in this practice and, in fact, would often save the children who'd been discarded. Now, Jewish families were much better than their Greco-Roman counterparts, but even in their culture, sages said we're not to bother with educating children. But there may also be a sense of pride in the disciples that causes this reaction. This is especially clear if you read the chapter preceding this one, where they're arguing about which of them is the real superstar and Jesus' favorite. Perhaps the disciples, influenced by their society and intoxicated with the power of being Jesus' closest confidants, 
appoint themselves as the gatekeepers. They decide who gets in to see Jesus and gets his time. Acting like bouncers, they block the children from coming. But instead of approval from Jesus, they get rebuked. Verse 14, Jesus was indignant. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Or as my kids would say, roasted. I don't know about, I don't know. Maybe that's not a thing for your kids, but now it is in mine. It's all the time in my house. Ooh, roasted. I don't know about you, but I love when Jesus gets angry in the Bible because I think it teaches us a lot about what matters to God. I've spoken more at length about anger in our Seven Deadly Sin series or more recently in our Ephesians Off On New series. And you might want to listen to that if you're confused as to why Jesus, the perfect one, got angry. But for now, know that Jesus' anger is often on behalf of others. And since he's in a position of power, he does something about it. They have every right to be here, he exclaims. My kingdom is full of people like this, and I'll take it one step further. Verse 15, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, what does it mean to receive the kingdom like a child? People have suggested numerous possibilities. Is it that children are innocent? I'm not so sure. Probably anyone who's observed children closely will be disabused of that conclusion. Is it their ability to trust easily? Mm, not all kids are as trusting as others. Maybe it's that we're to have simple faith like children. This one really bugs me. When I served in children's ministry, ministry, I kid you not, I had children as young as four years old asking the same difficult questions about the Christian faith that adults were asking, just using different words. Just last fall, I had a conversation with a nine-year-old who finally let the stopper out on all his bottled up questions about Christianity. And I'm telling you, it was the curriculum for Alpha. It was the exact same questions the adults were asking me at the same time. One of the ways we can take this passage seriously and honor our children is by honoring their questions, not giving simple answers that either deny the imperfections of Bible characters or the mystery of God's ways at times. Now, I'm willing to concede there may be other possible interpretations for what it means to receive the kingdom like a child, but the one trait that was true of children in that culture and indeed is true in ours today is that children, as a result of their low status that rendered them powerless, were dependent on others. They bring nothing to the table. They come empty-handed. They cannot offer much. To receive in that way means to receive as sheer gift, knowing that what we receive is a gift we did not earn. Notice Jesus says, receive it and enter it. Receiving Jesus' invitation is something we both receive and enter. We receive as sheer gift. There is nothing we can do to earn this. And yet, once we receive it, we enter a way of life. We walk a narrow path. We commit to following him. We come as little children, but hopefully we're going to grow up over time. 
Hopefully, we're going to grow in grace as we grow in age. And then in verse 16, Jesus backs his words with a visual demonstration of what he means. He took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, this taking him, them in his arms is kind of a weak translation. It's really to hug. It really leaves room for, if it's older kids, not trying to hug them, but tenderly embracing, putting an arm around. He gives them his time. He gives them his nurturing touch. And then he gives them his prayers. He blesses them. Now, remember, this blessing, this is a thing for Jewish people. Jesus himself got blessed in this way by Simeon when he was a baby in the temple in Luke 22, 28. Many people get blessed in the New Testament, but this is the only time people get blessed in this way. This is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. If the more common word is blessed, then this word is blessed fervently again and again. Blessing on steroids, if you will. This is not perfunctory blessing, people. This is tender, individualized, relishing. I wonder how long that took. I wonder if any of the disciples said, are you done yet? Probably not after Jesus' stern rebuke. This passage teaches us something about kids and about God's kingdom overall. We'll look at each of those in turn. First, what does this passage tell us about children? Children matter. Children matter. They don't need to wait until they're older to become followers of Jesus. They can climb right up in his lap now. His arms are open. He doesn't say, well, I don't really think you understand what that means yet. He simply opens his arms and celebrates their coming. Sure, he wants them to grow and mature after coming to him, but that's different than waiting to come until they're mature. In Southwest Minneapolis, we may not think children have a low status, and yet I fear we still tend to push children aside to where they won't disrupt the neat and tidy little universe we adults have created for ourselves. We either try to keep them occupied don't bother me, or we try to push them towards greater levels of success, make me look good. Like the disciples, we can tend to think of children as a distraction or disruption from what is really important. But as one writer put it, children are not a distraction from more important work. They are the most important work. Why? Because without children, all the values we hold dear and even life itself has no meaning beyond one generation. As Neil Postman says, children are the living messages we send to a time we will not see. We cannot afford to not invest in our children. Now, to say children have dignity and matter is not to say that they don't need direction, We're still to give instruction and correction. They are not ruling the roost here. And yet, also, honoring them does not mean we idolize them or the family unit, which the church is sometimes guilty of. 
Remember, this statement is coming from a single guy who was never a father. We can all find ways to invest in the lives of children around us, regardless of our place in life, helping them come to God, the true father. But if we are to take Jesus' words and examples seriously, how might this change how we view the children in our families, in our church, and in our world? What would it look like to value children with our time, our touch or nurture, and our prayers? Let's start with our families. And here I'm speaking whether you're a parent or grandparent, aunt or uncle, or older cousin to younger cousins. When we have children in our midst, are we more concerned about the space looking good or about the space being utilized by children to exercise their creativity? How often are we giving children our time really listening to them and hearing what they are trying to communicate to us? What might it mean to put children above our work, our redecorating project, our exercise regime, our hobbies? Within the church, we desperately want this place to be a community of belonging for all people, seniors and singles, students as well as children. Right now, we have the gift of lots of children in our midst. The last two years, we've had between 18 and 20 babies born each year. That's about a baby every two and a half weeks. And we are so glad you're here. We don't mind the shuffling in the pews or the squawking. We'll take snotty noses, stinky diapers, and mischievous kids running around the church any day. And it is our deep desire that each one of these kids will claim City Church is my church home, not just their parents' church. And yet, with this gift comes responsibility. With each child dedication, we as a community make a commitment to help nurture these children in their faith, praying for and with them, teaching them, supporting their parents week after week across the years. And many of you are doing that, serving regularly in City Kids Ministry or other annual events, VBS, Family Christmas Program. But I wonder, even with all the good we are doing, if there are more ways we can help children come to Jesus. In the early years of City Church, we had a phrase, give kids our best. And really, it referred to this idea of giving kids our best volunteers. Children's ministry, I have to say, is one of the few ministries in the church where you're constantly recruiting outside your own constituency. So for example, if you lead a growth group, you can say, hey guys, I'm not here, I'm out of town next week, would somebody lead? And somebody will do it. But you look at a class of four-year-olds, you can't really say that. Hey, four-year-old, take this class next week. You could, but that would lead for an interesting week. Now, before you tune out this shameless plug for volunteering in children's ministry, I am not saying everyone here should serve in children's ministry. Remember, I said, give them our best. <laughs> and frankly, some of you might not be our best with our kids. <laughs> you hardly liked your own kids, let alone someone else's. So we're not asking you necessarily to serve directly with our kids, but you can still do your part by creating a welcoming environment for kids, smiling at them in the pews instead of scowling, praying for that parent who's coming into the service bleary-eyed and late. 
Others of you may have gifts that lie elsewhere, mops or alpha or worship team or growth groups, meal ministry, catering events, facilities team. We are all gifted differently and each ministry is important. But some of you might be great candidates for children or student ministry. And I encourage you to have an exploratory conversation with Bethany or Peter. You could work directly with kids or you could work behind the scenes, organizing supplies, preparing materials. If you're interested at all in that, I want to encourage you to have a conversation with them. We are always looking for our best top-notch people to serve in these ministries. And finally, valuing the children in our midst will have implications beyond our homes and families, homes and churches. If we're really going to take Jesus seriously, we've got to be concerned about the plight of children around the world. Did you know that childhood poverty is on the rise again for the first time since 1960? And as we are learning from physiological psychology, poverty in early childhood can have profound and sometimes even permanent effects on young children's brains. If we're going to take Jesus' words seriously, we're going to support organizations like World Vision, Compassion International, International Justice Mission, Urban Promise, and many others that are doing good kingdom work to combat poverty and seek justice for children in a world of sex trafficking and sweatshops. Some of us will choose to care for children beyond financial support and will build relationships with kids by tutoring or coaching. Some may even do the hard work of offering foster or respite care for children, maybe even adoption. And some of you have given your work to helping children in these ways, and we bless what you do Monday to Friday. And when we do these things, we do it in Jesus' name, rooting our cause in his love and example. Children matter to God, so they matter to us too, his followers. Second, and much more briefly, what does this passage tell us about God's kingdom? Children model Children model for us how we are to receive the kingdom. This is what Jesus is getting at in verse 15. We are to receive the kingdom as totally dependent on God. We come to him empty-handed. We're to come to him small and helpless, without any merit or claim on our part. Yes, we, are, we also embark on a life of following him, which leads to wrestling with our questions and doubts and seeking to live the way he showed us. But we begin that journey powerless, simply receiving the invitation. Thank you is our most basic response. This is what Jesus was getting at when he began his famous Sermon on the Mount with these staggering words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or as Eugene Peterson paraphrases, blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God. The good thing about being powerless is that you must depend on no one else but God. They're the kind of people who can receive Jesus' kingdom. People who know they can't get in by their own account. City Church, our society is structured by hierarchies and pecking orders based on what we can achieve. But Jesus' kingdom 
is marked by surprising equality among all those who come, namely because the only way we come is empty-handed. In fact, in order to come, we adults must become like children. We must put our degrees, our money, our connections, our intelligence, our ingenuity aside and simply come like little children. As Jesus' followers, as citizens of his kingdom, may we be people who help the children we know come to Jesus, that they may serve as constant reminders of our own dependence on God. Let's pray. Oh God, once again, you defy our expectations. You are exceedingly, abundantly more than what we could ask or imagine. You don't just receive those little children. You lavish love on them and bless them. And you do that with us when we come empty-handed before you, saying we need you. We can't do this without you. Would your spirit now translate for each one of us here the ways we need to take this message and take your word seriously in our lives? For the sake of the children among us, for our sake and for your name's sake, that your good kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. Amen.